My first question is just how do you sort of, when you're you know, looking for stories to write, how do you get an idea for an investigative story? Um, well, I try and, uh, th there's, there's two ways investigative projects sort of come to light, typically. Either uh, the reporter himself will get a, a tip or we'll just be aware that, boy, here's, here's an agency where it looks like something is going on. I have a general sense of unease that, uh, you know, this bear is looking into. And the reporter then just dives into it, either looking at a real specific issue or just taking a broad look at an agency or a government official or something like that. The other way uh, an investigative project sort of comes to fruition is uh, just by assignment. Uh, you know, an editor will say, well, it's about time we looked at uh, police brutality or we looked at poverty or something like that. That second way almost never results in a good story, um, a good story that's investigative. Uh, it usually results in a good explanatory story, but sometimes it's a three-part series that just states the obvious mm -hmm. in excruciating detail. So I try to avoid those and I try to just uh, think about, well, on the various beats that I cover, uh, what kind of issues are out there that, you know, looks like there's real fertile ground or um, like with the courts. Uh, one thing that occurred to me a while back was that we haven't really looked at um, judges who are tardy in filing uh, decisions. So people who are waiting the outcome of uh, their divorce or their civil lawsuit or something like that, there's no mechanism by which to you know crack the whip and get the judge to put out a decision. But but the judges do report the number of cases that they're late uh, in rendering a decision on. I think there's a 60 day rule. So every judge, I think it's every month, has to tell the state court administrator's office what cases they're late in filing and, and how late they're, they are. So if a couple's been waiting six months for their divorce, you know, the judge has to explain that. Um, so I've just started recently looking at that. And that's one of those things where I thought, you know, whatever the data shows, whether you know, it shows judges are doing a great job universally, or there's a couple of bad actors, or there's systemic flaws, um, that's the kind of thing that's pretty easy to get at through these public records, and I know there will be a story there. So, uh, you know, I prefer to go that route as opposed to just the explanatory things. Mm -hmm. so, Definitely. Yeah. Um, and so you talked a little bit about it, but was there anything else that sort of sparked the your interest into the, like, how did you sort of come up with the idea to do the ghostwritten ruling? Uh, yeah, that was that was basically a tip from somebody who said, uh, you need to look at all of the public court filings in this specific uh, divorce case. So I, I called up the divorce case, and as you may know, in Iowa Courts Online, you know, you can not only look at the disposition of a case and everything, but you can look at the actual motions and filings and everything. And in this uh, divorce case, I think it was, I'm going off memory here, I believe it was the husband's attorney who was uh, upset that uh, there had been a court hearing where basically the judge had looked at his decision that one of the parties was sort of appealing and the judge looked at his decision and got angry as he was reading it and said well I didn't write this you know apparently recognizing that the decision was flawed in some way and got very angry about it because of course his name is on it mm -hmm. and he said that out loud which then caused uh, one of the attorneys to look deeper into it and eventually uh, 
the judge himself uh, gave a deposition in which he acknowledged, you know, there were, I think he said uh, up to 200 some cases where he had just asked one party or another in a case to write the decision for him and sometimes did it without telling the opposing counsel. So he said that in a deposition and as part of a motion in this divorce proceeding, an attorney just included an excerpt of the deposition that referenced that that specific point. So that was uh, that was startling to read that. But as a reporter, you know, having somebody like a judge under oath admitting or acknowledging that he did that, right. and in that level of detail, I mean that that's golden. I mean because it's not only a public record, but the individual who's saying it is talking about his own conduct, and he's under oath. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't get any um, uh, better than that in terms of sourcing. So 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 once I had that, then then it was just a matter of trying to contact the judge himself, the other parties in the case, uh, other lawyers and judges in that area who might know about other cases, uh, you know, the traditional work, that sort of thing. So. And so was the judge, um, the judge Jacobson, was he receptive to talking to you? No, he never did. Um, So I had to rely, uh, in terms of his perspective, very heavily on that uh, deposition, Uh, which, which, again, I was happy to do because he's under oath and he's recalling things that are more current to when he's being asked about them as opposed to a year later when, you know, I don't know about the judge's memory, but my memory isn't all that good on things. Mm-hmm. So um, so in that sense, it, it was good to have it in writing and under oath. Um, you know, my main worry was that if, if I, I did talk to him, if he contradicted what he had said in a, under oath, then, you know, what, what do I do then? I guess I just present both versions of, of whatever he said but but it, it turned out that that wasn't even an issue because he wouldn't talk to me so yeah. yeah so in other times when like you don't necessarily have like a deposition um that's so you know accessible like that yeah. what would you do if like there's something like this and there's a really important you know key figure in the in the story and you yeah can't in touch with them well i've you know in some cases it it's hard to get a hold of people by phone these days because everybody's got a cell phone and it's not necessarily listed anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you go through Facebook and that kind of thing. But it, but if somebody uh, really sort of stonewalls, you know, I don't have any. Particularly if it's a public official or an elected of, official of some kind. Um, I don't have any problems showing up at their doorstep to ask a few questions. And if they decline to comment, that's fine. You know, I, I, I don't argue with people over that. But it's just when they don't respond or don't answer emails. Um, I did a story a few weeks ago about county officials who had pretty much illegally routed public money into Catholic schools. Um, they'd been told by the county attorney that no, you can't do that. So um, what happened was a group of people set up a dummy corporation that would accept the money, and then the dummy corporation that didn't have any religious affiliation would then just pass the money on to the schools. So it was sort of a shell game with this money, and it was very obvious from the public records what had happened. But the uh, the county official who engineered the whole thing, um, he was. I did get him on the phone, and he did talk to me, but in response to almost every question, he, he, 
I asked, he said, I don't remember, I can't recall, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know why I did this, I, I don't know anything about it. But, you know, I, I just quoted him, uh, and it was, in some ways, it made the story more powerful, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then how did you, how did you know who to talk to? Like, wh- what were sort of your first steps when you were going about, after that initial case? Yeah, on that particular story involving the judge's ghostwriting, it, it was pretty easy to determine who I needed to talk to. I mean, you got the specific case uh, that's at hand, that divorce case. Mm-hmm. And of course, the attorneys are all publicly identified, so I was able to contact them and um, you know, see if they, they would at least be agreeable to talking to me. But then separate from that, you know, the hierarchy of the court system, I knew that uh, I'd probably want to talk to the chief judge in that district to see if he knew that this uh, district court judge that he, in some sense, supervises. Uh, if he, you know what exactly he knew about all this, but also to find out if other judges in the district were doing it. Um, so I, I put that. I think it was Judge Hoffmeyer was the chief judge, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but but I had asked him, you know, whether he was aware of this going on with other judges. Um, and then of course I asked the state court administrator's office. Um, you know, what they were aware of, uh, since that's sort of the next level up in the hierarchy. And they were good because they were able to at least refer me to some Supreme Court decisions that said, this is wrong and here's why it's wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I was able to quote from those in the article. Uh, so so that was a pretty easy story to determine, you know, who I needed to talk to. Yeah. Um, and then it also seems like you must have gone through a lot of court records and things like that. Yeah. Um, sort of what are, what's your process with that when you have, you know, a lot of material like that to go through, like court records in particular, public information? Yeah, this, this one wasn't too difficult um, because there were really only maybe a, a half dozen uh, different records that I, that I sort of had to track in a story that I had done about a lawyer who was based here in Des Moines had been uh, embroiled in a lot of ethical dilemmas. Uh, he, he's a, he was involved in dozens and dozens of cases where he was not only the lawyer for the parties, but actually the plaintiff. So he was suing other individuals on his own behalf and acting as the lawyer and filing ethics mm-hmm. complaints against judges and colleagues. And, and to track all that, uh, because there were the whole story was about how litigious he is. So there's a vast array of both state cases and federal cases that I had to track, and some of them overlapped with the same defendants. So he would lose a case, but then turn right around and sue the person for the same reason in a, you know in a different court or a different venue. Mm-hmm. Um, so to track all that was kind of a nightmare, and basically it's just uh, a matter of organizing and everything. And I'm still old school. I find it easier to organize things uh, if if they're on paper. Mm-hmm. So although I had everything electronically in folders on my computer desktop, it was it, it was much easier to sort of triangulate and and spot relationships in different cases and and recurring themes in some of his pleadings and that kind of thing if I if I had them in on paper in front of me. And so then, you know, typically what I do in those cases where there's a big volume of paper and my uh, colleagues mock me for this, um, I just have a couple of three-ring binders that I put everything into. So they know when they see me coming back from Office Max with three-ring binders that I'm working on 
some project. Um, but but that that's the best way to do it because only by organizing it um, in some way that makes sense to you can you find some of these really critical relationships between lawsuits. And and this guy is now suing us, which I knew he would do uh, because he is very litigious, and that was the whole thrust of the story. So he's now suing us. So uh, keeping track of those records was uh, right from the get go was critical. Um, and now, of course, you know, because he's suing us, he's it's uh, part of the discovery pos process. Uh, I think he's demanding access to all of those records. So we'll see where that goes. What is it like to be sued? Uh, it's not good, <laughs> yeah, as you can imagine. Um, but in in this case, I just knew it was coming, just because of the nature of this this story, uh -huh. uh, which basically had to do with the fact that. He has some uh, mental disabilities, which he's acknowledged in court. Um, but those mental disabilities seem to be fueling his litigious uh, conduct, or at least the two things seem to be related in some way, which he also acknowledges. Um, but I, I just never run into a situation where somebody had these acknowledged disabilities but also had a law license. Um, but 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 yeah, we knew right from the get go that he was probably going to come after us, uh, and he has. So you know, you just prepare for it, and uh, um, you know, you know it's coming. You can't do anything. I've, I think I've only been sued. Is this the first time? It's, it's maybe might be the yeah. first time. Maybe it's only. I, I've been involved in other court cases. Um, where prosecutors have tried to drag me in as a, as, a, as a witness to testify on behalf of, okay, you, you reported that this guy committed these crimes, how do you know that? Uh, but I don't, this might be the first case where I've actually been a defendant. I think it is, actually. So, yeah, I've been fortunate in that regard. You must do a very thorough fact-checking. Hopefully, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I try to. Yeah. So. Um, and then what were some of like your main takeaways from the article? Like is there anything in particular that you want to like that you would sort of wanted to point out? Well, you know, the the main thing this is sort of alluded to in some of those Supreme Court uh rulings about why judges shouldn't let lawyers do all their work for them. Um I mean, my main concern right from the get-go wasn't that uh, a judge was relying heavily on the attorneys to sort of draft a proposed order because that's very routine and that helps the judge turn out uh, a decision that's you know timely and people aren't waiting months for it and he even said in his deposition that one of the reasons he did this was to make sure he didn't violate that 60-day rule he wanted to get these decisions out fast but but the one element that you know, I sort of worried might be lost on readers was that um, he wasn't just letting the lawyers uh, dis uh, write the decision favoring one, one person or another. I mean, the judge still said, okay, I, you know, I, I think this party has won, and because I think you've, you've won, I'll let you write the decision. So that he, he felt the decision was still his, but the critical element for me was that he was letting the lawyers write the underlying rationale for his decision, which, of course, they would have no way of knowing. And right. it's that underlying rationale for the decision uh, that would form the basis of any sort of appeal or a court decision on an appeal because... Uh, 
you know, anybody can appeal any outcome, but, but then you have to attack the judge's rationale. And if the rationale was just made up by some other lawyer, that has huge implications uh, for people being able to appeal that. Um, so it, it was really, um, I, I think I'm, one of the legal experts I, I talked to might have alluded to that in sort of a general way, but, but that to me was the most troubling aspect of it was uh, there was no thought get, get given to how people's appeal rights were being undermined by this. Right. But I don't know, you know, maybe the average reader doesn't care, but that might be a little too deep or esoteric, I don't know. But. And then when you were looking to see if sort of, like, if any, or like before before the story, did, did anybody seem to know about this, or was it being handled at all, or yeah, did, your, I, did your article kind of break it open? I, I don't think so. There wasn't much talk about it, and even... You know, other than the lawyers in that one divorce case who who were sort of mortified by it all happening, um, there clearly was one lawyer in that uh, district or county um, who had done this on more than one occasion, written a decision at the judge's request. But it was one of those things that people, if they were aware of it, they weren't really talking about it, which is kind of bizarre. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of... Uh, Oh, years ago, I had done a story about uh, the prosecutor in Cass County. He had devised a system whereby when people got tickets there for speeding or whatever, he would let people uh, basically buy their way out of a ticket. Um, so instead of pleading guilty to uh, speeding, which would have an impact on their driver's license and their insurance rates, right. potentially, he would say, well, just okay, let's say the ticket was for $100. He would say, well, you pay me $400. Uh, not pay me personally, but pay the county or you know, the court system $400. I'll write up uh, a bunch of fictitious offenses to correspond to that fine, and you plead guilty to all these fictitious offenses that um, they're not moving violations, so it's a defective windshield wiper, defective taillight, all these mm -hmm. things that were completely made up. People would plead guilty to a whole stack of those that would add up to X hundreds of dollars. It would cost them more, but they wouldn't have a moving violation on their record. And so he cooked up this whole scheme whereby he did this, I and mean, it was blatantly illegal, and he did eventually get kicked out of office, but all the lawyers in that county knew about it. And they all sort of took advantage of that, but nobody really talked about it. No, nobody really, uh, there was never an attorney who called up the newspaper and said, you know, this is really illegal and underhanded and it shouldn't be happening, which always bothered me. I mean, it, it, took, um, it took a citizen who'd been offered one of these deals and rejected it um, to call me up and say, hey, I got this letter from the county attorney offering to have me plead guilty to a bunch of fictitious charges uh, I don't think this is right. And if that cit citizen hadn't uh, called and sent me that letter, I mean, I would never have known about it either. Right. So, it, yeah, it always amazes me how you can have a whole circle of people, even lawyers who you think would know better, know about things like this, but they don't really blow the whistle on it. So, yeah, it's kind of scary. Do you have any ideas as to why they do that? Just because it benefits them? Uh, yeah, I suppose because it benefits them. In Cass County, I suppose lawyers always looked at it as well. You know, I might have a client who would want to take advantage of this offer. Um, 
you know, once I started calling people and, and I went to the courthouse and looked at all the people who had gotten this deal or been offered the deal and rejected it, and I started calling them. And some of these people are in California because, you know, they're driving on the interstate and they get ticketed. Um, and they were like, yeah, I couldn't believe they offered it. This is just a complete scam that, you know, people of means can buy their way out of a ticket. Uh, but people who maybe don't have as much money to spend just have to bite the bullet. And, and uh, so the average citizen knew it was wrong, but, but the lawyers and, of course, the judges who signed off on these things. I remember talking to one judge, and he said, uh, I think his exact quote was, I just sign whatever they put in front of me. Uh, again, which sort of ch sends a chill down your spine when you hear that. But, um, I wonder why they decided to be a judge. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Not the most rewarding uh, line of work, I would think, if that's all you're doing. Right. But, but yeah, that's, you know, as a reporter, of course, you're always glad to bring things to light, uh, you know, to be the first one to expose something like that. But as a citizen, you, you're, you're always horrified that uh, stuff like that uh, has remained... Uh, under wraps. And that case I talked about uh, involving the county money going to the Catholic schools, I wrote about that just a few weeks ago when I found out about it. But a lot of that money went to the schools five years ago, well, you know, so, uh, and lots of people knew about that. They just knew it was illegal and so they weren't talking about it. Yeah. What are, what are some of like your favorite stories that you've ever done? Uh, well, probably... Um, the Cass County story uh, uh, was one of my favorites just, just because uh, I like paperwork and I like to have things documented as opposed mm -hmm. to just relying on human sources. So when you're dealing with court records, there's lots of paper and everything's in writing and right. depositions and all that. Um, so that, that was uh, a rewarding story to, to work on, but also it exposed some really serious wrongdoing and uh, that... Yeah, that story was a finalist for the Pulitzer uh, wow. that that year for for investigative reporting. Okay. So, so that that one was rewarding in that sense. Um, but probably the most rewarding one uh, that I've done was the story about. Um, it's a few years old now, so you probably hadn't heard about it. But um, there was this so-called bunkhouse in Adalissa in eastern Iowa where uh, mentally disabled men had been working for 40 years at a turkey processing plant. And they'd been working for a salary that averaged out to about 41 cents an hour. And yeah. uh, all these guys had been brought up from Texas back in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, basically to work on this labor camp, like something out of the Great Depression or John Steinbeck, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and they were just getting these... Uh, yeah, after deductions for their room and board at this bunkhouse, which was basically just an old converted schoolhouse where they all lived, um, they were taking home about 41 cents an hour. And it was just uh, horrific. And, and the, int the interesting thing about that case was we had written about it, I think, in the early 80s or late 70s. And then everybody sort of forgot about it. And a lot of people... Um, who were in the disability community and that kind of thing had just assumed that it closed after the register brought oh, wow. it all to light. Um, I was, you know, in 1979, I think I was still in high school, so I, I was completely unaware. And then one night I got a call from the sister of one of the men living there, and she explained the whole situation. All these guys have been living there for decades, working for pennies, you know, per hour. 
in this turkey processing plant, all of them mentally disabled, all of them should have been living in a fully licensed care facility. This place didn't have a license of any kind. It was just, it literally was just a labor camp. And, uh, and so that, that story was very rewarding because as soon as we brought it to light, which was within just a couple of days after getting that initial call, federal authorities came in and state authorities, they shut the place down. Um, all of the men were relocated uh, and got decent care. And a New York Times reporter wrote an entire book about it wow. um, called The Bunkhouse Boys. Um, and so, so that, was, that was rewarding. Um, because uh, there you had a situation where, uh, you know, what do they say? The, the job of a reporter is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That, that was a situation where uh, literally uh, you had these disabled men who, who needed, desperately needed decent medical care and a decent place to live and a fair wage and that kind of thing. And they did all get that once they were extracted from that bunkhouse but until then it was just a nightmare so that that was a, a good story to work on how like how long does it take you typically to write a story like a, like a, a big story like that well that one um that one was a little bit unique because uh, I recognized there was some urgency, the health and safety of these guys, even though they'd been there 40 years. I kept telling myself, you know, I don't have to get this story in tomorrow's paper. You know, once I got the tip and was able to pin a few basic things down, I said, if it has to wait four or five days, you know, that there shouldn't be anything horrific happening. But, but I got that tip, I remember, at like uh, 7 o'clock at night, and then I worked... Uh, through the night uh, just pulling our library clip files and uh, business records on this labor camp outfit and background in the individuals who were running it that you know that took several hours so I basically just I, I don't think I even went home that night for dinner or anything I just worked through the night and then the very next uh, morning um, I just drove out to the place and looked at it and was horrified and then I, uh, that same morning, I visited with the caretakers who uh, sort of supervised the men in the bunkhouse. And they gave me some uh, detailed information, including payroll stubs that confirmed what the wages were and some other detail. Uh, and then uh, I hopped in the dumpster and uh, extracted some more records from the, uh, for, from the bunkhouse. And then... I, from that point, I was able to put together a story in maybe uh, oh, 48 hours, and we had it in that Sunday's paper. Um, the downside of that was that uh, the story really got underplayed because the editors weren't expecting it and they didn't have time to play for it, so they only gave me about that much space on, uh, mm -hmm. on page one, which I was mortified by. But because uh, I knew that would probably be the biggest story that I'd ever worked on or right. ever would work on. Right. Um, but, but 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 the 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 thing about that is is I mean that's the initial story. Uh, but then I don't think I worked on anything but that story for the next at least three or four months well. and uh, driving down to Texas and. Uh, and looking at the operations down there because they had other bunkhouses down there and then doing more background and uh, researching DHS's role in it. So I was able to just break off chunks of the story bit by bit and pursue those over the next several weeks. But, but I did want to get that uh, initial story in the paper very quickly 
because as soon as I called state regulators and said, why aren't you licensing this place? I could tell they, they kind of uh, were like, oh my God, that's still open, and they were going to act on something. So I didn't want the story to get ahead of me. Uh, because then, that, then it just gets hard to report. You know, you're, right. you're yeah chasing a moving ball, and it, it's hard hard to do. Um, so I, uh, but, but yeah, we got it in the paper uh, within four or five days of the initial phone call. But I usually try and turn things up pretty quickly. Um, where th- where it gets time consuming is if I'm trying to deal with a federal agency and I file a written. Freedom of Information request, because then it can be months before you get the records that you want. And if the records are the whole basis of your story, uh, you've just got to find you know something else to work on until they get back to you. Um, just this morning, I was dealing with a federal agency, and they're not giving me the information I want. But I knew they wouldn't. Um, I have a, re- uh, a FOIA request with that same federal agency that's been pending for. I believe nine years now, wow. and and they won't say no, which would enable me to uh, file an appeal and take it to court, but they won't say yes either. They'll just call me once a year and say we're still working on that request unless you don't want the records, in which case we'll drop it. And I always say no, I'm still alive. I still work here. <laughs> I still want the records, um, uh, but but they're they're deliberately just stalling because I think they know if they say no, I will win an appeal. So they won't say no and they won't say yes. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of mentioned sometimes you know like if a story starts to catch up with you, um, does that happen a lot? Do you run into that? Yeah, it it does. Um, you know sometimes you call somebody and uh, you say, well, hey, I'm doing a story on such and such, and. Uh, and then immediately, uh, the first thing they do is turn around and put out a press release that tries to sort of uh, uh, get the information out there with their own spin on it. Right. Um, that that does happen on occasion, but usually I'm pretty prepared for that. And and the other thing I, that I try and do, I think probably all reporters do this on investigative projects, is when you when you start making calls, you sort of work from the outside in. And there are certain calls that you save toward the end of your reporting, um, not just you know to protect your your story and prevent prevent things from spinning out of control, but just to make sure that you have as much information in hand, so that when you call the uh, oh, the person who's at the center of this, who's accused of doing something wrong, uh, if they do try and spin you or give you information that's false, you have information in hand at that moment to to you know, counter that. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing worse than uh, calling that person who's the focus of your investigation right out of the gate, right out of the gate. They tell you a bunch of things. You then go out and find out records or whatever that contradicts everything they told you. But at this point, they're not talking to you because right. they know you've you've reached out to all these other people. So uh, so sometimes very deliberately, I, I try and make those the, the last call. Uh, still give them plenty of time to think about whether or not they want to talk to me and get, get their comments in the initial story, but but nothing beyond that. Yeah. And then, what are, are there any other things you do to kind of prepare for that or kind of keep that at bay? Like when that when you know like if something like that happens, yeah. what's your response? I guess. Well, you know, you have to be mindful of the fact that you know when you file records requests, uh, reporters, good reporters. Uh, sometimes have standing requests with state and federal agencies to access every information request filed by the competition, you know, mm-hmm. filed by other reporters. So, 
you have to be careful about tipping your hand that way. Um, so sometimes I won't make a request that um, I'll, I won't formalize a request unless I have to. You know, I'll try and make the request verbally. Uh, the other thing I will sometimes do is um, you have to do this sometimes to protect your source. If there's a particular document that you know exists and you want to get it from a government agency, but you know that if you ask for that one particular uh, document, like an email mm -hmm. that was sent by one person to one other person, well, if you specify, I want this email that was sent at 12.35 on December 10th, the, the agency is going to know that, okay, one of two people told this guy that this email right. exists. And so now you, your, your source is at risk. Uh, so sometimes I will try and guard against that uh, by broadening the request uh, to include other records that I am genuinely interested in seeing. I'm not just doing it to make work for anybody. But uh, I'll broaden the request to, to make sure that... Uh, it doesn't identify the source of the information or the source of the tip that we're getting. Mm -hmm. um, that's about it, I, th I think, really, is just try not to tip your hand with a formal request, but then broaden the request sometimes to protect your own source. Right. And then um, kind of speaking of protecting sources, um, like when you're working on stories, you kind of do need to do that, but yeah. their you know, information is also really important to the story. Um, what do you kind of do to make sure that you're protecting people not putting people in danger, but yeah. also presenting the information as it is. Well, I try and, uh, you know, you get the ground rules uh, set right off the bat so that people are aware of, um, and there's no reason the average citizen would know the difference between on the record and off the record and background and deep background, you know. Even if they watch a lot of movies, you know, they're probably not going to know the nuances of all that. So I'll try and, uh, if somebody calls me up and says, well, if I tell you something, do you have to report, you know, who it's coming from? I'll, I'll say no, to, you know, if you're worried about being identified but you want us to know about something, um, the best way to do that is... Uh, Maybe you drop something in the mail anonymously, and I genuinely don't know uh, who it came from at that point. I said people mail us stuff all the time, so if you're if you're inclined, if you've got some documentation or anything uh, that that you want to get into the hands of a reporter, you don't have to put a return address on it, as long as I can see that the documents. Uh, uh, you know what they're all about, and it would lead to a story. I can then get the actual official documents from the government agency so that I'm not using something that could have been dummied up on somebody's computer but 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 now I know what to look for or what to ask for uh, and so, so that helps the other thing I'll do is I'll I'll tell them I say well everything will be off the record which means um, I not only uh, won't use your name in print um, I won't use the information unless I can verify it with other people and if I talk to other people on the phone, which I likely will if I'm doing the story or in person, um, I'm not going to say, hey, I got a call from so-and-so. I just won't even, I don't even entertain uh, discussions usually about, well, how did you get onto this story? Sometimes it's pretty obvious from what we've written. Uh, right. Like in the judge's ghostwriting thing, you could tell, oh, okay, there's this deposition. And I think I said in one of the stories that while the judge gave the deposition months and months before, it had only become public the previous Thursday or something by virtue of this motion that was filed. So in cases like that where it's public record, I'll, you know, I don't mind uh, telling readers, 
as much as I can about uh, why certain things came to light. Um, in the case of the uh, those county grants to the Catholic schools, the county supervisors, were, you know, he's saying, well, why are you writing about this now? You should have been at our meeting five years ago, but you guys don't cover the county anymore. And, uh, and that's a valid uh, complaint to make, but in presenting it to readers, I, I just pointed out that, um, yeah, this all happened five years ago, but, but when it happened, the resolution that the county approved at its public meeting sort of concealed the fact that it was going to Catholic schools. Mm -hmm. It just said elementary schools. It didn't mention anything about private schools or Catholic schools. So um, uh, th that helped readers understand why we were writing about it five years later. And then when you when you get tips, um, how often do you kind of get tips that don't really turn into a story? Uh, yeah, that happens pretty frequently. Um, I, I still listen to all the tips that we get because you never know. And sometimes, uh, you know, reporters are tempted to dismiss a tip that comes from a source that maybe is uh, seems you know through their behavior or whatever seems less than credible. But you know. I always figure, particularly if we're not relying on that person as a source for the published story and we're just looking for guidance on where to get the information, um, I don't have any problem, uh, you know, I, I don't distinguish between, you know, the sources and that sort of thing. But, but we do get a lot of things that I just have to tell people right off the bat, well, that's not a news story. People who call up and say, boy, you know, my boss is treating me really poorly at work and I hardly get paid anything and it's just a terrible job. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, that, but that's not really a news story. You know, unless they work for a public agency and there's something illegal going on. Right. Uh, but if, if somebody's working for a private company and the company is just unethical, that's usually what those kind of calls pertain to, and we just have to say, well, that's not really, uh, uh, that's probably not a news story. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And then um, on some of these like bigger stories, like there were multiple versions, like well, not versions, but multiple kind of parts in a series. Yeah. Like how um, how many you know parts do you usually do, or is there any kind of method? Does it sort of just depend on? Story, yeah, it kind of depends on the story. I, I've always, always figured that you shouldn't break up a story, or the rationale for breaking up a story into multiple parts shouldn't be based on the length of the story, um, but, but should be based and sort of uh, governed by the, the content of the story. So, for example, um, if I'm writing a really long story... Uh, but it's all about a pretty narrowly focused issue. It's just a very compelling thing that we think deserves more space. I just as soon see all of that run on one day, if at all possible. But um, one of the stories I'm working on right now deals with uh, regulation of uh, health care facilities in Iowa. So as one element to that, I'm looking at nursing homes and how regulation is changing there. Another element is the fact that surgical centers in Iowa aren't even... Uh, licensed or inspected, which, which is kind of a bizarre concept to me. You wouldn't think that would be possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, hospice uh, in Iowa, where people literally are, are in the process of dying, uh, you can open a hospice uh, facility in Iowa, and as long as it's not Medicaid or Medicare funded, it might not ever be inspected. Hmm. Um, at one point, the last time I looked at this issue, hospice facilities in Iowa were being inspected on an average of once every 20 years. 
And I remember calling a healthcare advocate who said, well, that doesn't even pass the laugh test. You know, once every 20 years, why even bother? Um, so, so that particular story, that, that's a project that falls under the umbrella of healthcare regulation, but there are very natural breaks because right. the regulation for hospice is completely different from hospitals and nursing homes and surgical centers. Then you got home health aids, which is another nightmare. So it seems like just for the benefit of the reader, if you break those out and run them over five different days, with each day looking at a different type of healthcare provider, that that's probably helpful to readers just mm-hmm. to keep it all straight. So that 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 governs why I break them up the way I do when I do. So, is it also sometimes about like like urgency or something? Like if there's enough information sooner and you know you want to get more? Yeah, it can be. I mean, that was sort of the case with the the bunkhouse. Certainly, right. uh, get, get the immediate. Uh, holy shit kind of story out there right away. And then all the very obvious follow-ups of how this could happen and who's responsible and who are all the actors in this, those could play out over time. And that makes it easier for for readers to digest anyway. Um, There were uh, the Quad City Times where I I used to work, I did a a big project about uh, telephone scams and all of the uh, police agencies and fire agencies that were using telephone solicitors, and the whole thing was just a scam. I mean, the, the police officers and firefighters were getting pennies on the dollar, and these old people are being victimized and being told lies and on the phone and everything to, to extract money from them. Um, that, I thought, all needed to run in one on one day. And I, in fact, I think we published it all as just sort of a special section. Hmm. Um, sort of a pull-out section. There was a lot of information out there because of all the different groups we wanted to detail, but it all it all fell under one very easy to identify umbrella of, uh, you know, sort of a scam. But, um, yeah, so so that, that sort of dictates when you do it too. Yeah. Um, and then have you always been working in investigative reporting or kind of where did you start in journalism? Um, my, well, my first... Uh, job at a newspaper was um, I, I, it was at a small weekly in Metamora, Illinois and I basically was doing ad sales and photography oh. and the layout and uh, helping run the press and you know the whole nine yards even, even bundling the papers and putting the grocery inserts in and delivering them. so I did that for about two years and then uh, got a job as a reporter at uh, my hometown paper, the Bettendorf News, which is just a small weekly. I don't think it even exists anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but that paper was owned by the Quad City Times, the big daily right. uh, in the area. And so then uh, they hired me as a reporter. They didn't have a um, an investigative reporter position there, but, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I just started uh, doing those stories anyway. And... Uh, in order not to step on my colleagues' toes, I just looked for gaps in our coverage. And every newspaper, particularly these days, has gaps in, in their coverage. So right. I tended to just uh, look, well, nobody's covering this agency or nobody's going to the, you know, covering the Davenport Civil Rights Commission or something. I'll focus on them and look at them. And it didn't take too long before uh, I was able to start producing a lot of stories that were um, investigative or sort of had that revelatory element to them that, that were real enterprise stories. They weren't based on current events or anything. 
Um, so after I did that for a few years, then they just created the position of investigative reporting for me. Oh, cool. so, yeah, so I was able to just do that full time, which was the goal all along, you know, because that's what I wanted to do. But sometimes, you know, you got to show the editors that, number one, uh, uh, there's there's space for stories like that in the paper, and readers appreciate them. And number two, that you're the guy who's capable of doing them. So, right. um, so yeah, I just sort of initiated that on my own. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and then I guess my last question is like, if you have any advice for like young investigative reporters in this, you know, time in journalism. Uh, yeah. Um, you know that that is tough because uh, yeah, things are changing so rapidly and. You know, it seems like the focus at so many papers, um, including the one I, I work at, is, you know, the, the focus is on web traffic uh -huh. and web hits. And um, the kinds of stories that I like to do are not, not necessarily the kinds of stories that, uh, you know, it's not news of the weird kind of things that are going to generate huge numbers of uh, people just... Who, who are looking at their phone and want to click on something short and weird and interesting. Right. Uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, my best advice would be to uh, get to a paper that, that values uh, that kind of work and, uh, you know, is actively demonstrating that they value that kind of work. And then, um, yeah, j j just find out what areas of... Uh, you know what what topics issues or agencies aren't being covered and then uh, just do some background and research on those and if there are agencies that spend a lot of public money um, that's always worth looking at if if there are uh, you know some entities like Polk County government seem to be hotbeds of patronage and uh, that kind of thing so so you you can usually get a get a sense for where the real fertile ground is pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, that that would be the the only advice I have is uh, focus in on those areas that aren't being covered at all. Well, thank you so much. Sorry to sure. make you talk for so long. Oh no, that that's okay. Um, you know, yeah. reporters like to talk about themselves sometimes.